Welcome to day 12 of the Federal Election Campaign. It's Friday the 22nd of April, my name is Cam Wilson and welcome to Crikey's Election Cast. Only a few months ago, Scott Morrison and the government were testing attack lines claiming that Labour was weak on China and hinting that we could be headed to a khaki election. Well, be careful what you wish for, because fast forward to today, and a deal between China and the Solomon Islands in our own backyard has put this issue back on the agenda, but probably not in the way that the government wanted. Crikey's Tips and Murmurs editor Charlie Lewis spoke with our political editor Bernard Keane about why this is such a blunder and its impact on the coming federal election. A reminder, we record this live, so please forgive the audio quality. Over to you, Charlie and Bernard. So for those of our listeners um, who haven't really been sort of following this, this, this issue, just give us a sort of general introduction to what has happened recently with, the China, with China and the Solomon Islands and why this represents such a big issue for the government. Well, the growing uh, role of China in the Asia-Pacific uh, has been on the minds of policymakers now for quite some time. This is a rehash of an issue that if, for those who are old enough to remember, uh, back during well, the last Cold War with the Soviet Union, um, issues around aid and assistance to small nations uh, uh, often became tangled up in great power politics. So uh, large countries like the US and its, and its vassal states like Australia were always had to have one eye on how much assistance they were going to provide to small nations uh, for fear that those small nations could turn to the Soviet Union uh, for assistance um, as well. And... Um, uh, smaller nations could actually be quite clever in leveraging uh, that issue to their advantage. And we're seeing something a little bit similar uh, happening now with China's growing assertiveness and its willingness to expand into areas where, at least according to Western analysts, China really has no business being. That's something that is strongly disputed. I, I think, I mean, there's this view that the Asia-Pacific, or, or at least the, the, the Pacific, our part of the Pacific, uh, is kind of our backyard and New Zealand's backyard and China has no business uh, actually being there. Uh, as Clinton Fernandez uh, has pointed out, Professor Clinton Fernandez of UNSW has pointed out, in fact, that's odd, at odds with the, um, the historical role of China, which has actually been quite active uh, across the Pacific. China's, um, throughout its history, been a great maritime nation. Uh, as well as a great landmass. So um, uh, the idea that somehow this is our lake and they're not welcome to it um, uh, is probably a little bit ahistorical. But what's, what's brought this to a particular head is that in late March, word leaked out that the Solomon Islands government um, uh, had was in the process of negotiating a deal with China over the location of facilities um, uh, and supporting infrastructure and supporting services, um, which could, uh, at least in some interpretations, be considered a kind of a Chinese base in the Solomons. And uh, this caused enormous alarm within the national security establishment, if for no other reason than the fact that it came as a complete surprise. I mean, it, certainly the, um, uh, the, the view of um, uh, a lot of... Um, uh, political correspondents who are specialists in this area. The view of uh, a lot of experts is that um, Australia was indeed taken completely by surprise um, 
by this deal, which was leaked in draft form, and then it was ratified uh, relatively recently, despite the urgings of the Australian government uh, toward the, um, the Solomons government to reconsider doing a deal with China. So at a point in an election campaign, which we were told over and over again by the press gallery was going to be something of a khaki election and was going to uh, involve um, a lot of anti-China rhetoric from the Morrison government and a lot of attempts to portray Labor as soft on China, uh, we've had some pretty graphic demonstrations, if you like, that the coalition government has dropped the ball pretty fundamentally uh, in regard to allowing China to get a foothold, not merely in, in a region we consider our own backyard, but actually not very far from Australia um, with uh, all sorts of implications. Implications sufficient that the Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce, let us not forget that Barnaby Joyce is the Deputy Prime Minister and will continue to be if the government is re-elected. He declared that Solomon Islands was now comparable to Cuba. Uh, that is a small foothold of a hostile power um, uh, just a relatively short distance away from Australia's shores. So um, by the words of um, the Deputy Prime Minister himself, this is a major strategic disaster for Australia um, and one that's happened entirely on the watch of a government that insists that it's, um, that it's tough on China and that its opponents are too soft on China. Right. And given, I guess, what a shock that that ended up being, um, apart from uh, our dear friend Barnaby, what kind of reaction has the government, what, what has the, the government's been react, reaction been? Well, it's kind of a bit hard to know. I mean, the, 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 this issue really took some time to get going. I mean, the, initially there were sort of some pro forma expressions of concern. Um, the initial response was to send two senior intelligence officials. So, um, the, the head of ASIS, our foreign intelligence body, or at least what's supposed to be the foreign intelligence body, uh, was sent to Honiara, along with Andrew Shearer, the, uh, uh, the, who currently occupies a role of director of um, the Office of National Intelligence. Uh, they were sent to talk to um, uh, Prime Minister Sogavari about the deal or the putative deal as it was then. Um, really a pretty strong indication that our intelligence services had no idea at all this was happening, uh, despite what um, some press gallery stenographers might be reporting uh, today, uh, was the fact that we had to send our top ASIS official over to Honiara to actually learn some detail about this deal. More recently, after the election was called and the caretaker period kept kicked in, uh, Labor agreed that the uh, the current sort of minister in the care in caretaker mode for the Pacific, Zed Seselja, who's an ACT senator, uh, that he would go to Honiara to try and plead the case of Australia for the Solomon's government not to sign this deal. Um, that failed. Uh, I suspect the reason that there's a much-asked question in all this, which is where's Maurice Payne, uh, who, lest we forget, is the foreign minister, where's she been in all this um, a lot of questions about why she wasn't sent to Honiara, as certainly as her predecessor, Julie Bishop, suggested she should have been, rather than this fairly junior minister, uh, Zed Seselja. I think that's because the government already knew this was a done deal between China and the Solomons, and uh, it was a bit of a damage limitation exercise. If they'd sent Maurice Payne over to Honiara to plead our case, and then she came back, and um, as happened with Zed Seselja, um, uh, Prime Minister Sogavari, sign that deal immediately. 
um, it would have been, uh, you know, would have been a clear demonstration of how um, uh, impotent Australia was in this particular situation. But again, I mean, Zed Seselja was downplaying the significance of all this. He was saying that Barnaby was wrong about the Cuba analogy. Um, and throughout it all, of course, it's been this lingering question of what exactly did we know about this, if anything, um, because uh, Scott Morrison himself has been pretty unclear about whether we were indeed taken completely by surprise by this particular deal, uh, which, if we were, uh, you know, has pretty significant ramifications for our intelligence services. Right. Yeah, I do want to get into the kind of the, the lingering issue of what we knew and when. Um, and what that says about our intelligence agencies in just a bit. But the, the, the thing that um, you, you alluded to earlier in your answer was um, the fact that it's only really just starting to become a real issue. And I mean, obviously you and, and Professor Fernandez wrote about this pact um, well over a week ago, and it, it, it happened before that. Uh, but it's only really just started in the last couple of days to really start to surface as um, an election issue. I note that Jason Clare hit it pretty hard in his first post-Albanese press conference on, on the issue. Um, how do you explain that delay, not only in terms of sustained media interest, but but the ALP kind of trying to capitalise on, on it as, a, uh, as an election issue? Well, I mean, kudos to, you know, some journalists like you know, the ABC specialist journalists. Um, it's, um, uh, it's foreign policy uh, specialist uh, Stephen Jedget and uh, Andrew Green as defence uh, correspondent. They both understood this, this significance of this right away. I mean, they, they actually broke the story. Uh, they were tweeting about it on March 24 when this, when this draft text uh, was leaked. So they, they knew immediately just how important this was. It took the mainstream of the press gallery, i.e. political journalists, non-specialists, took them a lot longer to work out just what a big drama this really was. And I think that's partly because there is this mindset within the press gallery that, you know, the coalition has got the issue of national security locked up, that, and you know, in particular, that the coalition's got this, you know, the issue of, of China, you know, locked up, it controls it, and it can wedge labour whenever it wants on the issue. I mean, I've always found that rather peculiar because it really does illustrate the amnesia that applies in the press gallery. Um, you know, it's only a few years since the press gallery was talking about what close relationships Australia was going to have with China under Xi Jinping. Tony Abbott signed that now dead letter trade deal uh, with the Xi regime that was lauded to the high heavens by the press gallery as a political and economic masterstroke. I mean, we were going to, we were going to sort of become ever closer to the Chinese orbit, according to News Corp. And then a few years later, we had to sort of, you know, Orwell likes, you know, flick the switch, and suddenly China became uh, the, the great demon. But I think that sort of sense that, well, you know, the the, the coalition is unimpeachable on national security issues, um, acted as a kind of buffer. And it took a while for the full significance of this deal and what it afforded the Chinese to really sink into uh, the heads of journalists who obviously were much more focused on, on the election. And, of course, foreign policy doesn't tend to pay, play much of a role um, in elections. But you know, after a while, the sheer enormity of it, I think, has finally sunk through. And we are seeing something very unusual in Australian election campaigns, which is foreign policy actually playing at least a minor role. I don't think it's going to shift very many boats, but I do think it has damaged the, the coalition's um, credentials around the whole issue of China 
um, and uh, and national security. So, so you know, as as always in political reporting, a lot of it's about mindsets and the frameworks and the narratives that political journalists bring to the subject, even before they've put pen to paper or finger to keyboard. Yeah, I'm um, going back to I suppose um, yeah the, the the other sort of issue that came up in, in your answer the the efficacy of intelligence agencies. What does this episode tell us about that? Well, if ASIS didn't actually know anything about this deal, then it is an absolutely staggering failure. I mean, this is core business to know what our prime you know look to 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 this some debate about whether China's our enemy or not, but to to not understand what our primary strategic rival in this region and a global superpower is up to in our own backyard is a colossal failure of intelligence. There is no under, there is no under, sorry, there is no overstating just how bad this is. ASIS is charged with knowing what China is getting up to uh, across our region and to not, to not be aware of something as big as this is really quite remarkable. Now, today we saw some stenographers in the gallery uh, reporting that, well, in fact, the, our security agencies did know about this deal and, in fact, played a hand uh, in, in making sure that it was leaked. Now, that, that looks to me extraordinarily self-serving uh, on the part of those agencies. And it also raises some pretty significant questions. Zetsaselja quite clearly said, and Maurice Payne has backed him up on this, that they didn't know about this deal until it became public on March 24, uh, when the rest of us were finding out. Now, if it's true what intelligence agencies are now anonymously and without any accountability or transparency or checkability are saying, i.e. that they knew about this deal all along, then it seems that they kept our, their political leaders and our political leaders in the dark. So, I mean, which is it? Did they not know what was happening, which is a catastrophic failure of intelligence? Or did they keep our political leaders in the dark, which is equally culpable? You know, which, which particular sin have they, you know, have they, by their own admission, uh, copped to? Now, you know, the broader framework for this, Charlie, is that in Australia we have a really huge black hole when it comes to accountability for our intelligence agencies. In particular, the contrast with the United States is staggering. In the United States, there are not one, but two congressional committees that overview intelligence and intelligence agencies. And they do a darn good job of it. Um, you know, you do get, occasionally you get sort of you know, Republican idiots on the intelligence committee in the House or in the Senate who, who um, you know, misbehave but those committees really do uh, act as a strict check on the activities of organizations like the CIA um, and in fact a few years ago we had that the famous incident turned of course into a very entertaining movie started starring Adam Driver uh, when the Senate's intelligence committee actually conducted an investigation into the CIA's use of torture after 9/11 and the CIA ended up spying on that committee getting found out that it was spying, denying that it was spying, and then having to confess that it was engaging in spying on congressional officials. Um, that sort of thing could never happen here in Australia because we don't have any committee apparatus to oversee intelligence agencies. Yes, we have the Parliamentary Committee of Intelligence and Security, which 
oversees uh, the, the, the budgets of these agencies and it can conduct reviews as requested by the government. What, they, what that committee can't do, and as a government control committee anyway, what the, that, that committee can't do is actually conduct investigations into the operations of these agencies. So, you know, even if there was a parliamentary will to, on the part of both the government and opposition to say, well, what the hell happened here? Why didn't ASIS know about what was happening in Honiara between the Chinese and the Sogavari government? Um, there, was, there is no capacity to actually conduct a review uh, by existing institutions. So, you know, what we really need, I think, is either, you know, probably some form of judicial inquiry. Because, again, I don't want to repeat this, we can't overstate what a failure this is in intelligence terms. I mean, when the Americans, going back to the 1990s, when India developed its nuclear bomb and suddenly surprised the world by saying, well, we're, we're going to start testing nuclear bombs um, because we've developed one, the Americans actually had a full-blown inquiry into why the CIA and their other uh, intelligence agencies were taken by surprise by this. Now, you know, if that's good enough for the Americans, it's certainly good enough for us to be asking questions about ASAS, which is the least accountable, most shadowy, and as far as I can work out, uh, most controversial uh, intelligence agency, because ASAS is, after all, the outfit that happily went and bugged the cabinet room of the Timor-Leste government in order to help Woodside uh, in negotiations over access to fossil fuels uh, in the Timor Gap uh, 20-odd years ago. Um, it seems to me ASIS is very good at conducting commercial espionage uh, on the part of the likes of fossil fuel companies, not so good at looking after Australia's core interests, which is, you know, include knowing what on earth the Chinese are up to in establishing facilities in um, Australia's or in a region that we'd like to pretend to ourselves is our backyard. Yes, but I feel that we could uh, the the role of ASIS in in team, bugging team uh, East Timor is a, it could be an entirely different conversation. I think we could have one time. Um, I suppose just to sort of wrap things up, and you did you did allude to this a bit earlier, but um, the, the the question that we kind of always ask, especially with real tedious regularity during an election campaign, is you know. Does anyone outside the political class actually care about an issue like this? So the the unaccountability of ASIS, the kind of intelligence failures that, that that's brought about, is that going to be something that you see uh, having any real uh, reverberation with the broader public and, and shifting any votes? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think a single vote will be shifted on, on this. Look, the, the, the people who already understand this stuff know about the hollowness of the government's rhetoric on China. So, I mean, the, the, the cognoscenti are, you know, are already across the complexities uh, of this issue. And anyone who understands what's been going on in the Australian intelligence community for a long time knows about the huge oversight gaps. They know about the problems. I mean, I was speaking to a, uh, a, a, a figure who's you know, had many years, decades of experience with intelligence matters. And their view was basically, don't get me started on ASIS. There are fundamental problems in that organisation. Um, something that, that any person who's followed the, the trial of Bernard Clary and the, you know, the ordeal of Witness K, you know, would certainly um, uh, agree with. Uh, but will it, you know, beyond, beyond the Canberra bubble, beyond the, the political class, I don't think it's, it's the sort of issue that's going to um, 
uh, is going to resonate. Um, sadly, <clears throat> excuse me, that's the COVID. That's the COVID speaking there. Um, and I mean, the broader issue of the coalition's credibility on on national security and foreign affairs. Uh, look, I, I think there's no doubt it's taken a hit in relation to this issue. But again, we come back to you know a lot of this is mediated by, well, to, to be sort of. Uh, uh, to be redundant, is mediated by the media. I mean, journalists still have this mindset that the coalition owns national security, despite glaring evidence that they've badly stumbled on this particular issue. So these things will continue to be portrayed in a particular way by journalists um, in you know, a way that might be quite at odds with uh, how it actually is in reality. But, you know, it was ever thus when it comes to uh, not merely election campaigns, but politics more generally. Bernard Keane, political editor of Crikey, talking to Tips and Murmurs editor Charlie Lewis for Crikey's election cast today. We will be back after the long weekend to update you on everything that happened on the campaign trail. And as always, we'd appreciate it if you could please review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever platform you choose. In the meantime, do check out our work at crikey.com.au. TGIF and enjoy your weekend. Bye.